This is Very Public Affairs, the podcast of the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs. Here's your host. Welcome to Very Public Affairs. I'm Wayne Burns, the Director of the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs. And in this episode of the pod, we're diving into the challenges of leading corporate public affairs functions of international companies, but in market, in a country or region where you need to manage global and local issues, teams, reputation and the corporate brand locally, but within a company's international corporate affairs framework. And we start our conversation with two highly experienced practitioners. Antonia Sander, 20 years in corporate public affairs internationally, is now Director of Corporate Affairs for Australia and the Pacific for global payroll solutions company Deal, and was former head of communications for Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook, and for quite a while, head of communications for Facebook in Australia, New Zealand, and the Pacific as well. So thanks for joining us, Antonia. And we've got Guy Matthews, who's corporate affairs head of the global banking and finance company City, and he heads up the corporate affairs function for Australia and New Zealand. He has more than 20 years with City, including managing director and head of corporate affairs in China, and then 14 almost 14 years in lead corporate affairs roles in Japan for City as well, and about last seven years in Australia, almost seven years. It's coming up to seven years, I think. Isn't it It'll be seven years in about a month, Wayne. Here so we go. yeah, you're pretty, you're pretty good. Lucky, you're still in the lucky stage. Seven's the lucky number, which is which very is much so. Both of these practitioners are joining us because they've been in positions for a large part of their careers where they've been stewarding international reputations and international brand as uh, a stakeholder brand of global companies in local markets, whether they be in Japan or in Australia and in the UK for Antonia as well, and now across. Asia Pacific for you, Antonia, as well. So I'll kick off and ask you first, Antonia. We have a view at the centre that stewarding reputation and issues and the corporate brand for a global company, when you've got a local reporting and an international reporting line as well, is one of the most complex roles in corporate affairs. We've, we've observed that over many years. Do you think there's a difference between using all the tools of corporate public affairs to steward and manage the corporate brand in a regional market as opposed to global headquarters, the mothership, where all the action is supposed to be happening? Thank you, Wayne. Yeah, and thank you for having me. Look, I do. I think it's fair to say that the mothership generally has way more resources, way more tools. Certainly at Meta, there were teams, there were writing teams, design teams, we had video production teams, and you, you don't often get that in individual regional offices. That's not to say we didn't have access to them, but um, often the regional teams are not as prioritised being able to use these tools. However, the company I'm at now is actually Deal, and it's fully remote, fully global organisation. So there actually is no mothership there, which is quite an interesting change. Look, and I think it's more inclusive. I think it democratises the teams. And so you all have access to the same tools. You're all international. You figure things out. But the joy of comms is that we're very used to problem solve. So whether or not you've got international, huge amounts of tools and resources, or whether you're kind of more scrappy, you kind of learn to solve the problem problems and work with the internal team. So certainly at Meta, we were definitely scrappy and we found resources from many different areas. We used to work with an incredible designer who was an Australian-based designer. We'd never actually met her. We just had an online relationship, but she learned how the brand, how the brand worked, what we wanted, and she could turn things around with under 24 hours, something that an international team would never have done for us. So there's lots of different ways you can actually work with it. 
Uh, Guy, what about you? Uh, do you think it's more nuanced and a bit more challenging managing the, the corporate reputation and corporate brand of an international operation out of head office market in, in market in other in other countries? Yeah, look, I, I would say that the tools we have at our disposal are probably quite similar, and particularly between markets like Australia and the US. You know, I would say my team almost mirrors the, the global structure that we have in New York, with the exception of perhaps investor relations and, and corporate aviation for obvious reasons. Uh-huh. Right? Is that, is that deliberate? Do you do that deliberately? Yeah, I mean, I've pushed pretty hard for a private jet because, you know, I got <laughs> delayed on the tarmac for about an hour yesterday from Sydney to Melbourne and that's never pleasant. But in all seriousness, I mean, we have very similar tools available in our arsenal to deal with uh, and to enhance our reputation here as well. It's it's the weighting and with whom you use those tools that I think really differs between, say, the US, particularly New York and Washington and Australia and New Zealand. For instance, I think there's a much higher weighting on, on government engagement, on working with government stakeholders and lobbyists and political activist groups and activist groups in general in the US than perhaps there is in Australia. And also too, I think you're coming at it from a completely different brand awareness point of view. If, if our role is to, you know, to enhance the, the reputation and the brand of, of city, well, it's, it's kind of already there in the US, right? Like you, you can't turn a, a street corner in Manhattan without seeing a, a Citibank brand or you turn on the baseball and good chance you're going to be watching the Mets at City Field. So coming from very different starting points. So I think you just have to work a lot harder here in the uh, the far-flung regions than you perhaps do in the, in the headquarters. So while you're on that, Guy, there are a lot of directives that come from global uh, headquarters, from global corporate affairs, and um, but there's good reason behind uh, most of those directives and messages and the way you should be doing things. What scope is there, have you, you found, to apply a local nuance and, and a local flavour? And if there is scope, is that about the culture or is that, has that been about you getting trust from the global operation that you know what you're doing when you're nuancing and when you're massaging? Look, I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest, Wayne. And I would say that consistency of message is really important, particularly around large-scale issues that do impact markets all around the world. But you can't operate in 100 markets with one message and expect stakeholders across all of those markets to interpret it the same way. So we rely on good, experienced people on the ground who can take those consistent messages and nuance them for the local market. And it may just be delivering them in a different way. It may mean using the different tools in a different way. But I think City has has always been a global bank. You know, we opened our first overseas offices back in 1902 through half a dozen countries in Asia. We've been in Australia for about 90 years now. That's in our DNA. So New York knows that they can't have that one size fits all because, you know, that's part of a value prop is to be quite local and have local management as part of the global brand. It helps having the trust built up over 20 years at City, but I think they're willing to give that trust fairly early on in someone's career because that's what we need to do. And that's what we've always done. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Antonio, um, nuance, massaging, um, ensuring that the message is tailored to land effectively in the local market. What's been your experience throughout your career? Yeah, I I think that's very true. I think it's important. I think that you really do have to add a local flavor. Localization is really everything, particularly in a region like Asia Pacific, where you don't have similar languages, you've got very different cultures, very different religions, very different political environments. I think the local nuance is 
is very important. And that's why I agree, we really have to have local teams on the ground and trust the local teams to be able to take the messages from HQ and translate them into things that will work. I think you can't pitch to journalists without understanding the local climate, without understanding the local political systems. This is all incredibly important. Um, My colleague in Latin America mentioned to me the other day that you can't pitch a story about inflation in Argentina because it's always been there. And yet you can pitch that story for the vast majority of the rest of the world that are going through these things now. It is desperately important to understand the local nuances, the holidays, the days. It's very rare that I find a story from a global organisation that you even pitch it on the same day because there's there's different holidays, there's different religious festivals. So we we launched, had a global announcement that went out today in uh, English-speaking market. It's going out in Korea next week. It's going to go out in Japan in three weeks time. So local nuance is everything um, and you have to learn to trust the teams on the ground that they will deliver that. Yeah, I think too, Antonio, nothing demands trust more than issuing things in a local language that the headquarters doesn't understand, right? In Japan, we would always do an English release and a, and a Japanese release, but, you know, our New York folks would not have a clue what we were talking about in the Japanese, or they just have to trust the local team that it aligns. And it doesn't have to be the same. I always said I'd much prefer a message that works in Japan and in Japanese than a direct translation. And if the nuances are different, then so be it. You've just got to, you know, have that trust. So I think that's pretty true. And on that guy, the I mean, the narrative, we're talking about nuance and localization of messages so they actually land and, and understanding the local socio-political environment, which will determine the messages as well and when and how they're delivered. Does the narrative, does the company's narrative have to be clipped, edited, reordered, massaged, nuanced to, to be effective in, in your experience? I'd say, I mean, the, the mission and those sort of really top level messages doesn't change. There's probably a difference in the narrative between the headquarters and the local markets, but I've been surprised that between the local markets themselves, the the narrative and the value proposition of city is pretty similar. So you can take our clients and stakeholders, employees, community groups in Australia are, are not that different from they might what they might be in France or in South Africa or in the UAE, because the reason they bank with city, the reason they come to work with city is actually because we're not a local bank or we're not a local company and they want to exposure to the global opportunities or the global thought leadership, things like that. And that's quite similar and consistent between many, many markets around the world, but it is different from the mothership, right? Because we are that big bank that's much bigger over there. And Tony, what's your view on the, the narrative, especially at Facebook and, and Meta? The, the narrative was pretty set in cement, wasn't it? The company was reinventing itself every a couple of years. I know you don't want to talk too much about your former employer, but the narrative was, this is the narrative, right? It was not, you know, not much correspondence could be entered into. I disagree with that slightly. I think yeah. the local nuance always came through. I think the social media scene and environment, particularly across the APAC region, was very different. You'd have markets that definitely Definitely Facebook was the leading app. You have got other markets, particularly markets like Korea and Japan, where it wasn't. You had their own best of breed and you also had Instagram that actually was a much higher app. So I think it really depends on the local market, depends on the local situation. Uh, Here at Deal, um, we're 
remote working and remote hiring experts. But remote working and remote hiring is a very, very new concept. Deal as a company has only been around for three years. And remote working, really, whilst it's beginning to have legs, if you like, prior to COVID, it's just, you know, the last two or three years have demonstrated to the world that we can work remotely. And it's something that teams are looking at. But still within the Asia Pacific region, you get markets where somebody's job, where they do a nine to five, and they go and they, they're a lifer at one company, that's still the norm in some countries in Asia Pacific. So I think, yes, the message definitely needs to be tailored and you need to find nuances. I think, you know, from Guy dealing with a bank, when you're dealing with an established institution, the messages are less nuanced. But certainly with a, a brand new company, with a brand new brand and new offering, a new product on the market, I think you can definitely really localize it and tailor it to what that market is really needing. Often, if you're in a, a regional role or if you're in any country role, sometimes you report to region as well. Starting with you there, Antonia, do you feel that there is more of a level, it's more complex or more level of complexity in a country role where you're, you've got a global and then you may even have regional or you might be regional reporting to global, then you're reporting into the local operations as well? A lot of managers have to do this. I mean, in corporate affairs, the issues are really fast and you know, the half-life of issues you know, it can be a couple of hours, you know, or a couple of weeks. Is that a added level of complexity and stress for you or has it been? I think as long as people understand their roles and they know where they fit into the overall picture and they know what they're directly responsible for and what teams they report into, that needs to be really clear and really mapped out. Certainly from my time at Meta, the US teams were a lot broader. There was a lot more people, but they often had, they were responsible for an individual area. What you often find at a country level is the teams are responsible for all of those things at a country level. So you tend to be, rather than product specialists, you tend to be comms generalists. And so you dive into policy and you can dive into regulatory affairs. You also have direct contact with journalists. You might try your hand at video production and editing on the side. So you tend to have these multi-skilled teams, which is incredibly useful because you know a lot about a lot of things and you often know what's going on completely in the whole company. That certainly was my experience at Meta. And it's incredibly interesting that teams in the US, they get to a certain size and they don't often communicate with teams that they generally don't need to. But you often find at a country level, you do have those relationships and you do have to communicate with multiple stakeholders across the whole business. I find it as long as you understand the roles and you delineate amongst the teams, then complexity can come out of it. The other thing I would say about complexity is that technology is a great leveler. And using the tools now that we have at our disposal, Slack, Workplace, a whole bunch of video production tools, you know, Google Docs, for example, these are just fabulous tools, comms teams and comms groups to join together and to understand each other. And always on documents that can be completely changed overnight, keeps narratives fresh, keeps the story and the messaging real. So long may these tools continue to grow and proliferate because we need them. You are listening to a podcast from the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs, a membership-based organisation comprising companies, industry associations and government departments across Asia-Pacific. The Centre works with its members and other entities to apply best practice to extend their social licence to operate. The Centre develops and delivers executive education globally, conducts research and provides specialist consulting services. 
a guy complexity. And I'm just thinking you as well, you worked in Japan for many years, which yeah. as well as the corporate environment, the culture, the business environment can be quite hierarchical. So I'm not sure whether that you found that more complex or not there and then across your career, yeah. is there a level of complexity? Look, I think, as you said, and as Antonio touched on it, it's normal to have multiple bosses, right? So, you know, I report to the CEO locally and I report to the head of Asia Pacific Public Affairs in Hong Kong, and that's normal. And sometimes that actually works well. If you have a difference of opinion with one, you can get the other on board to help shape in the direction or, or otherwise they sometimes they team up on me and they get me to change my mind. But I think you don't just have two bosses because we do the whole range of things here in Australia in, in corporate affairs. You know, I essentially am accountable to about half a dozen people in, in Hong Kong or New York who run those functions. And to illustrate that, I was meeting with the head of a sporting organization here in Australia and I was hooking up a meeting with him and our global head of sponsorships. And he said, so is this guy your boss? I said, well, no, my boss is this person, this person. But essentially, if it's sponsorships, I need him to sign off on this. So the same would go with media, same would go with internal and, and all the other stuff. It's not as easy as just saying you have two bosses. In terms of sort of the cultural complexity, an example where I might say hierarchy in Japan, I was a little bit lucky being foreign. They can't tell how old you are. Having a little bit of gray hair didn't, you know, actually work in my favor. But they bestowed upon me a title of executive officer. So I became an executive officer and head of public affairs. And I needed that executive officer because in Japan, it sounded really, really cool. And I could take my business card into a meeting and immediately they'd say, well, this guy must be important because he's an executive officer. You know, even my my wife's dad was telling his friends I was an executive officer, whereas, <laughs> you know, back here, it's just like, yeah, whatever, right? So that was important. And also too on complexities of how quickly issues move. When I was in Japan, my direct reports were all in New York. So I reported into the New York head office, whereas you're 12 hours away in a time perspective. If something's happening during our day, which might be the middle of their night, you're either on your own or you rely on resources in region. You know, I formed a pretty strong relationship with the team in, in Asia, Hong Kong and Singapore. And we work quite well sort of triangularly between New York, Tokyo and Hong Kong to deal with issues as they came up. The city was good in terms of there was no sort of jealousies or insecurities about me going to one or the other. It was quite helpful and, and helped us deal with issues in real time. It's often said in regional corporate affairs role, the old Chinese saying that the mountains are high and the emperor is very far away. So often you might need to do what needed to be done. It mightn't be exactly what was directed. And of course, you, you two would never say this because your bosses may be listening. You've never done that. But some folks have done what they've needed to do within the confines of policy and proprietary, of course, but sometimes you probably need to execute in a way that may not be the way the execution would have happened back in uh, in head office. So you talked a little bit about relationships there, a guy, and your business card helped you, that executive officer. I think I was the vice president of paper clips um, when I started my company for a little while, which sounded very impressive. How have you gone about cultivating relationships? And I guess technology makes it a bit easier now, very far away, like at global public global communications in New York or global public mm. affairs in Washington, for example. Yeah, and it, that's something that's come up a lot in the last couple of years when people are not meeting. I mean, nothing beats a face-to-face -face meeting. And I think that you get the best relationships out of two ways, right? So meeting someone face-to-face, -face, talking to them about their issues, maybe sharing a drink or doing something social with them. That way you can build trust from a foundation. The other is actually working through problems and issues and crises with them, whether that be in person or remotely. You build trust pretty quickly when you can prove that you can work together and you can work well. So we, every year we have an annual offsite in our training center in New York and you know, hundred or so people from around the world and the function get together and we spend two days listening to the CEO and the business heads and external speakers and debating strategy and all that. And you know, you're you're away from home, you're away from the office, it's full food, full drink, you've got billiard tables, table tennis tables, all that kind of stuff. You do team building 
activities and you come away from it and you've got a hundred lot stronger relationships with colleagues. So, you know, we do that every year. We do that in region as well. So once you've done that, you're very fortunate in that then you're just sort of building it from a, a much stronger position. And Jamie, yeah. those relationships. Look, relationships are really key. And I agree completely with what Guy has said. You f- can form those relationships really quickly when you're responding to multiple media cycles and the media cycle may start in Australia and then it hops to the UK and it hops to the US. And as long as you have those trust-based relationships already built, then it's incredibly helpful for teams to know, okay, Antonia's got it in Australia. There's another person in the UK that's on it. And then we do a follow the sun model and then you can deal with issues as they come up. Being in now in a fully distributed remote working environment, whilst I love the environment, I still also look forward to going to those in-person moments, getting together at WeWork with the local Sydney team or even these biannual meetings with my local comms teams. They're really important and it's really important to understand the people, understand the person. I mean, we're all people at the end of the day. We crave meeting and we crave kind of getting together as people. So I do think it's very important for the trust piece that that can still happen and that teams can learn from each other, whatever environment you work in. Human relationships and trust is key to this role. Just also to ask you, a lot of organisations that are not multinational across Asia Pacific operating in one country have found it difficult at the beginning of the pandemic to manage issues virtually. They'd never done it before. And there are lots of tears at bedtimes and and frustrations. Are we ever going to be able to get our head around these issues when we haven't got a war room and not everyone's in the same place? You've both been working internationally and managing issues in time zones and economic groupings and business models for many years. Do you think generally that helps you be a better issues manager, which is really central and leading issues management? Guy, just uh, you're in an issues rich environment with banking and finance and employee activism. What's your view on that? Do you think it can sharpen your capability to manage issues if you are managing them across borders, geographies, time zones? I think you just answered the question in the question, Wayne. It's absolutely, you can't get 20 people around the board table when they're all in different countries. So different time zones. I've been on calls at one in the morning because it's the only time that works for four different regions, right? And, you know, the technology back in those days was pretty bad. It was just conference call. But the concept of, of just working remotely, working with other people, sending documents back and forth overnight, having someone in London take the pen until New York comes online and then getting it back in the morning and it's completely different and improved. That's just the way we work. It's just an old school way of, of what Antonia does for a living now, right? That's the thing. It's just sort of evolved a lot. So being in that position, being forced to be in that position because of the um, tyranny of time and distance, it sharpens your claws for the virtual working. Antonia, what's, what's your view? Yeah, I mean, if you look at global media cycles, they're always continuous and they're always changing. And so you really have to make sure that teams across the world are bought in, they understand what's happening, certainly have my fair share of issues management, that something is broken in Australia. We know it's going to cross time zones incredibly quickly. So, you know, we have to write statements, make the whole company aware of the statements, send them into shared documents so that anybody who needs them can take one look at them. So my colleagues in London are waking up to no surprises. I mean, that's really key. No surprises. When I first joined Facebook, that was why one, um, my boss said to me, just no surprises, Antonia. Tell me what's going on in your region. Tell me everything. So that if she gets a call from her boss in New York, she could completely answer all of the questions. So we, I think trust- we say that too. Like that's, yeah, yeah that's yeah. number one, two and three, I think. 
Uh, no, no surprises. So complexity, not scaring the hell out of anyone because of prizes, multiple reporting line issues that are global and are very active. It's, it sounds like a very stressful environment. What keeps you awake at night, Mr. Matthews? I'm a bad sleeper at the best of times, Wayne. So um, a lot keeps me up at night. Look, to be honest, I don't stress the little things. I certainly don't stress about things that I can't control. What does keep me up at night is really almost the, the evolving nature of things. So, you know, when I wake up in the morning and it's like, where has it gone? How has it changed? Or what do I need to act upon in the morning? But the things that you can't control, you just got to put some parameters in place to best mitigate whatever might happen. But I've never really stressed about what I can't control. So yeah, I mean, that's probably a non-answer, but not a lot keeps oh, me up. So you're a chill guy. No, it's, well, you kind of have to be, right? And I've always stressed to my team, and stress is not the word, I've always emphasized to my team that look, if the corporate affairs people are losing their cool, then that's pretty bad right like it's when the pilot might be shouting and screaming at the front of the plane you don't want him to him or her to do that so pretty important to, to be pretty balanced and cool on the outside even if you're sort of churning around on the inside reminds me of a new yorker cartoon a couple of weeks ago where the passengers are in the air on a plane and um, the announcement is just to let you know ladies and gentlemen the captain is working from home today so there we go antonio what's keeping you awake at night well, last night, it was my colleagues pinging me on Slack when I forgot to turn my phone to silent. But actually, generally, I have a six-year-old. And so I have learned that when I need to sleep, I sleep. And so generally, nothing keeps me awake at night. And particularly now that I'm in an organisation, I've got full trust with my with my boss and full trust with my very distributed global team. If something is happening and I need to hand over, it goes over. We work the time zones. I love a follow the sun model in that you can finish your day and hand stuff over to my colleague in London. They can hand stuff over to Buenos Aires. They can hand stuff over to California. And then I wake up in the morning and it's my Tuesday. My one love actually working from Sydney is that I love a Monday because we're the first people in the world to wake up. Yeah, and Fridays, I get... Fridays are not as much fun though, right? <laughs> <laughs> I get an entire day to plan my week, be very organized. Um, unless something really critical is breaking, like Monday often is my favorite day of the week. Okay. Unless you wake up to some uh, steaming pile of issues that someone's left from California on a, on a Friday night for you to deal with on a Monday. And it's been stewing over the weekend just for you. Yeah. Uh, hopefully that hasn't happened yet, but um, there's always an opportunity. <laughs> well, that's all we have in this episode of Very Public Affairs. We look forward to your company again soon. I'm Wayne Burns. Bye for now. If you enjoyed this episode of Very Public Affairs, subscribe in iTunes and leave a review. For more, visit the Centre for Corporate Public Affairs website at www.accpa.com.au.